in the beginning. That's how it starts, right? There's always truth, facts, and fiction. What one may be, the other could be, and that other one may not be. You may never guess, but if you don't, you'll ask. Unsolved, archived, and in the shadows. These dark stories need to be brought into the light. I'm Nick Knight, and these are the Knight Stories. Room 1046, Chapter 1. An adaptation of Emily Thompson's blog post, The Horror of Room 1046. awakened by H.L. Heron, my former editor and boss. It was late. The city outside had more interesting things to say than my old captain. Since my early retirement, I've found that I'm working more than I ever was. One thing is for sure. In retirement, my heart only beats a little faster when I'm paying bills. So every now and again, he throws me a bone. Some follow-up piece on something, a retraction or a correction. It's the humble, I'm sorry business, especially in this day and age. Well, I let him babble himself, empty of words, while I awaited the who, what, where. Rarely do I get a why. I guess when you think about it, that's my job, the why. Well, the who, some fellow by the name of Roland T. Owen, the what, murder, and the where, January 1935, the Hotel President, room 1046 in Kansas City, Missouri. You know, the two great Brannigans of a reputable newspaper man are the 45s who can bring it in nice and tight. Good chow-chow copy while you crack into your breakfast. All dressed up in job security and forget-me-not plain Janes. Then there's the crackpot, laboring under wild and fanciful delusions. Well, who wants a dream to run out? Now, there will be some lies in this telling, but there's also a lot of truth. Just don't ask me to keep track. After he deflated, I hung up. A thick envelope was pushed under my door. So I tricycled my way over, picked it up, and headed to get dressed. I found my uniform and played it tight right out the door. The early reports on this case were as ancient and mysterious as I could have come across. I walked into Thursby's for a sip and a burger and started. Just after lunchtime on January 2nd, 1935, a young man entered the Hotel President in Kansas City, Missouri. He had no luggage with him and got himself a room. He signed his name as Roland T. Owen and was given a key for room 1046 on the 10th floor. Owen had a cauliflower left ear, which made it easy for people to see him as 
a professional boxer or maybe a wrestler. He had dark brown hair, a large horizontal scar on the side of his scalp, rising just above his ear. This was at least partially covered by hair that he had combed over the disfigurement. The desk clerk gave Mr. Owen the key to room 1046 and sent bellboy Randolph Probst with him to the elevator to show Owen the way to his room. Probst later described Owen as neatly dressed, wearing a black overcoat. The maid that first day, Mary Soptic, had come back to work after a day off and around noon went into the room 1046 to clean. Finding the door locked, she knocked and Owen let her in, which surprised her just a little since a woman had been staying in the room before Soptic's day off. Apologizing, she said she could call back later, but Owen said it was all right and to go right ahead. Just moments later, Owen told her not to lock the door, that he was expecting a friend in just a few minutes. Soptic noticed that the shades were tightly drawn. This was true every time she and any other member of the hotel staff entered the room, and that the lamp on the desk provided the only light, which was rather dim. While Soptic continued cleaning, Owen put on his overcoat, went into the bathroom to brush his hair, and then left the room, reminding her to leave the door unlocked because, quote, he was expecting a friend in a few minutes. Mary Soptic didn't see Owen again until about 4 o'clock. She went back to room 1046 with fresh towels. The man was lying on the bed completely dressed with a note beside him which read, Don, I'll be back in 15 minutes. Wait. The madman from Lowell just arrived, and I knew my attention would be scooped up by all of his shenanigans. So I set the papers down. I placed my cocktail straw right at the tipping point and continued. The madman from Lowell let out one last portent before folding into his bar stool like an accordion. I needed to gather some focus from all the chatter. The music turned from hopeful and toe-tapping to simple and sad. I looked over the rabbit hole, I accepted whatever fate I may be pushed into. The following morning, the maid arrived to clean the bedroom. Once again, she found the man sitting motionless and dressed in the darkened hotel room. As she cleaned around him, the phone rang. Eavesdropping in on the call, she heard the guest tell the man on the other end, who he identified as Don, that he wasn't going to be having any breakfast this morning before hanging up the phone. Before the maid left, Roland T. Owen questioned her about her role within the hotel. When she returned in the afternoon with more fresh towels, an unidentified male declared that they didn't need any when she knocked on the door. Hmm. Two men. Don and this Roland Owen. Still slightly unclear. I closed my eyes and tried to visualize to make clearer the oddness of this tale. A little before 11 p.m. on Thursday, January 3rd, 1935, Robert Lane was driving on 13th Street. Now, Lane worked for Kansas City's Water Department. He later said as he drove, he noticed something rather strange. When he approached Lydia Avenue, he saw a man running west on the north side of the street. That man was in his trousers, shoes, and just an undershirt. That's all. And though the day had been pretty mild by January standards in Kansas City, he still must have been a little chilled. He waved and shouted for Lane to stop. He approached Lane's stop car, but slowed, furrowing his forehead. He apologized, saying, I- I'm sorry, I thought you were a taxi. And then looked up and down the street. 
Will you take me to where I can get a cab? So Lane nodded and replied, You look as if you've been in it bad. The man kind of grumbled, I'll kill that son of a bitch tomorrow, as he opened the door and got into the back seat. Lane glanced at the man. He shifted gears and headed his car toward 12th and Troost. He stared quietly at the man through his rearview mirror. Noticing a deep scratch on his left arm, he also noticed that the man cupped his hands. Lane thought maybe the man might be trying to catch blood from a wound that was more profound than just a scratch on his arm. Well, as the car approached the desired intersection, the man thanked Lane as he jumped out, then ran to the driver's side of a parked taxi, opened the door, and honked the horn. Very quickly, the cabbie could be seen hurrying from the restaurant where he'd been eating. Lane drove off. I decided to dust off and air myself out a little bit. The city had a cold and different feel. Smelling like second grade and a first kiss, tying these events together was starting to become a game of telephone. I finished up my smoke and then wheeled back to my stool. The next known encounter between Owen and the hotel staff took place Friday, just a little after 7 o'clock. The bellboy was Randolph Probst, who had taken Owen up to his room when he had first checked in. When he got up to room 1046, the door was locked and a don't disturb sign was hanging from the knob. Probst knocked loudly, got no response. After a moment, he again locked loudly and finally heard a deep voice say, Come in. He tried the doorknob and yes, it was locked. Again, he knocked and this time he heard the deep voice tell him, Turn on the lights. He knocked yet again and again and finally after seven or eight times, yelled through the door, put the phone back on the hook. He got no response and returned to the lobby where he told a co-worker that the guy in the room was probably drunk. The next morning played out, phone still off the hook. A bellboy by the name of Harold Pike went up to check things out at room 1046. What Harold didn't expect is the head of this tale. Owen was lying on the bed, naked, surrounded by what appeared to be dark shadows in the bedclothes. Apparently drunk, he also saw that the telephone stand had been knocked over and that the phone was actually on the floor. Pike straightened the stand, put the phone back on it, securing the receiver in its place. It was reported that within two hours, the phone was off the hook again. Our third bellboy, Randolph Probst, was now ordered to see what was up, and when he unlocked the door, he discovered... When I entered the room, this man was within two feet of the door, on his knees and elbows, holding his head in his hands. I noticed blood on his head. I then turned the light on, placed the telephone receiver on the hook. I looked around and saw blood on the walls, on the bed, and in the bathroom. This frightened me, and I immediately left the room and went downstairs. Newspaper accounts, however, kind of conflate the action. Having probes discovering Owen sitting on the edge of a bathtub, his head resting on the top of the sink, which occurred a short while later. The police arrived in short order. Owen had been restrained with a cord around his neck, his wrists, and his ankles, and looked like he had been tortured. Knife wounds bled on his chest from over his heart. Now one of these wounds had punctured his lung. His skull was fractured on the right side, where he had been struck more than once. There was bruising around his neck, suggesting strangling as part of the torture. 
Besides the blood that was on the bed itself, more blood had splattered onto the wall next to the bed, and a small amount of blood could even be seen on the ceiling above the bed. Now, when Dr. Flanders arrived, he cut the cords around Owen's wrists. His hands freed, Owen turned on the bathtub spigot, which Flanders then shut off. Detective Johnson asked Owen who had been in the room with him. Owen, kind of semi-conscious and barely able to talk, said, Nobody. How had he gotten hurt then? I fell against the bathtub. Had he tried to commit suicide? Owen mumbled, No. Then started to slip fully into unconsciousness. Owen was then rushed to the hospital. Dr. Flanders later put the inflicting on the wounds at six to seven hours earlier. Since a lot of the blood on the body had dried to a hard mass and the blood on the walls and furniture had solidified, as the detective searched room 1046, they began to realize what they did find might not be as telling as what they didn't find. There were no clothes in the room, anywhere. No black overcoat, no shirt, no undershirt, no pants, no shoes or socks. Also missing were things like the usual hotel-supplied soap, shampoo, and towels. And any sort of knife or another weapon that might have been used in stabbing or cutting. The closest thing to any clothing was a label from a necktie. Besides that label, which showed the ties originating from Botany Worsted Mills Company of Passaic, New Jersey, the only items found were a hairpin, a safety pin, an unlighted cigarette, and a small, unused bottle of diluted sulfuric acid. There were also two water glasses. One remained on the shelf above the sink. The other lay in the sink, missing a jagged piece. The glass top of the telephone stand yielded four small fingerprints, possibly from a woman. Roland Owen slipped into a coma before they got him to the hospital. He died a little after midnight that night, Saturday, January 5th. With that, I settled up my tab, I made it back to my place. I needed to clear my head. The sawdust, the laughter was giving me double vision. There were many unsolved stories to take a pick at. Murder of coincidence, a guy owes a guy, so on and so forth. This leaned to the latter for me. I scooped up my change and headed out. The city was saying more again, this time with distraction and hope. When I returned home, I wiped my feet on yet another thick envelope. This one had the words, For Night, from Maxwell. I picked it up, dusted off my horseshoe stamp, and opened it. Inside were clippings, reports from Kansas City. My mind was preoccupied to think of who Maxwell is. Decided to flip through some of the closure to this mystery. Maxwell handed me a filing cabinet of ghosts. Sneaking suspicions and dead ends and turnarounds were starting to leak. I cracked open the window, went over to the bar, poured myself one, and listened to the city for a bit. The funny thing about looking at black and white photographs of dead white men, they never cry out with anything useful to say. I'm sure many a gumshoe would argue to that theory. But I'm not a gumshoe. I'm just a washed-up scribbler. So let's get back into it, Nick time to let what's left deal its hand. Now, during the night, the police queried the L.A. police who found no record of any Roland T. Owen. Before the night was over, via the wire photo process, the photo lab at the Star 
sent Owens' fingerprints to the Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation, what would later be known as the future FBI. Doubts were already being raised as to whether or not Roland T. Owen was the actual name of the victim. A woman had called the hotel president during the night to ask for a description and said the victim was a man who lived in Clinton, Missouri. By Sunday, the Journal Post reported that police believe Owen registered under an assumed name. This was just the start. During the night, the police queried the Los Angeles police who found no record of any Roland T. Owen. Now, before the night was over, via the wire photo process, the photo lab at the Star sent Owen's fingerprints to the Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation, or what would later be known as the FBI. Doubts were already being raised as to whether or not Roland T. Owen was the actual name of the victim. A woman had called the hotel president during the night to ask for a description and said the victim was a man who lived in Clinton, Missouri. By Sunday, the Journal Post reported that police believe Owen registered under an assumed name. This was just the start. Now, on Sunday, people viewed the body at the Melody McGilley Funeral Home. One report says 50, and another says 300. One of the viewers was Robert Lane. Lane identified the victim as the man who had actually stopped him on 13th Street. When he saw the deep scratch on the arm that he had noted on Thursday night, he was sure that this was the man who had waved him down under such unusual conditions. Robert Lane was driving on 13th Street. Now, Lane worked for Kansas City's Water Department. He later said as he drove, he noticed something rather strange. When he approached Lydia Avenue, he saw a man running west on the north side of the street. That man was in his trousers, shoes, and just an undershirt. That's all. Though the day had been pretty mild by January standards in Kansas City, he still must have been a little chilled. He waved and shouted for Lane to stop. He approached Lane's stopped car, but slowed, burrowing his forehead. He apologized, saying, I'm sorry, I thought you were a taxi. And then looked up and down the street. Will you take me to where I can get a cab? So Lane nodded and replied, You look as if you've been in it bad. The man kind of grumbled, I'll kill that son of a bitch tomorrow. As he opened the door and got into the back seat. Police said they did not see how Owen could have gotten out of the hotel without any staff or passersby noticing him. This, of course, presupposes that Owen was dressed the way that Lane describes when he left the hotel. Now, from here, the story had been picked up on several of the wire services, and more and more people started contacting the Kansas City Police to see if the victim might be the relative or a loved one who had gone missing. The police established that Owen had been seen in certain liquor places on 12th Street in the company of two women. As the detectives started to hear back from other police departments around the country, they began to close out a huge number of leads that they were receiving. The rate of new leads, though, began to slow. At some point, detectives followed up on the statement that Owen had stayed at the Hotel Mulebach the night before he came to the hotel president. They found no one named Roland T. Owen had registered at the Mulebach. But on the night in question, a man who looked like the one in the picture had stayed there, insisting on an interior room, and he had given a Los Angeles address as his home. Now, his name in the register was Eugene K. Scott. 
the police then contacted LAPD again, this time concerning Eugene K. Scott, and received the same response as they had gotten with their query about Owen. The Los Angeles police found no record of anyone living in L.A. named Eugene K. Scott. The detectives tried to find out more information about the other man, the one that was coming to be known as the mysterious Don. We know that Owen, slash Scott, told Soptic that he was expecting a visitor and to leave the door unlocked when she finished cleaning his room. She later heard him talking with Don on the phone. Now the search for Don continues. Now, on Friday night, January 12th, Tony Bernardi of Little Rock, Arkansas, viewed the body at Melody McGilley Funeral Home. Bernardi was a wrestling promoter. He identified Owen slash Scott as the same man who had approached him several weeks earlier, wanting to sign for some wrestling matches. Bernardi said the man had given his name as Cecil Werner, and he had wrestled for Charles Locke of Omaha. Now, as time went by, the detectives continued to follow up leads but the Owen-slash-Scott case seemed to grow colder and colder. On Sunday, March 3rd, the Journal Post published an announcement that Owen-slash-Scott would be buried the next day in a potter's field. Detective Johnson said he still hoped that someday he'd be able to identify the man who had been so mysteriously murdered. The burial, by the way, did not take place as announced. Now, I've seen this before. I already knew the answer. I had a couple of photos, some cards, slips of paper, police reports, and an abstract wish list of questions, but no answers. Melody McGilley Funeral Home received an anonymous phone call. That caller asked the body not be buried immediately and promised that he or she would soon send funds to cover the cost of a funeral. On Saturday, March 23rd, Melody McGilley received a special delivery envelope containing cash wrapped in a newspaper, but it wasn't enough to pay for the funeral and the burial. The sender remained unidentified. The funeral home did share the information with the police. The funeral was held. Owen Scott's body was buried at Memorial Park Cemetery in Kansas City, Kansas. On Wednesday, a woman called the Journal Post refusing to identify herself and told the paper that Roland Owen was not buried in the potter's field. Call the undertakers and the florists and you'll learn that Mr. Owen's funeral expenses were paid and that a floral tribute was placed on his grave. The flowers were secured from the Rock Flower Company in much the same way as the funeral and the burial was set up, although the anonymous money to cover the bouquet of 13 roses had to be sent twice. With the $5 payment for the flowers was a card to be placed with the flowers on the grave. It read, Love Forever, Louise. Now there was one smudged handwritten paper at the end that was marked NAME with an exclamation point. That note read, In mid-May, the American Weekly Magazine, a Sunday supplement published by the Hearst Corporation, carried a sensationalistic account of the murder. The story was titled The Mystery of Room Number 1046. This contained a photograph of Owen slash Scott's profile, presumably taken as he lay on the coroner's table. For over a year, Ruby Ogletree had not received anything from her son. That was except for three short, typed letters in which they were mailed in the spring of 1935. This was actually after Owen slash Scott had died. Mrs. Ogletree had exchanged more than one letter with J. Edgar Hoover, and she had written to the U.S. consul in Cairo, Egypt, 
seeking help in finding her son. When she received the magazine from her friend, she finally verified what she had long feared. Her son was dead. Mrs. Ogletree exchanged letters with the KCPD and on November 2nd, 1936, some 20 months to the day that he had registered at the hotel president, several newspapers around the country carried the story that let us know that Roland T. Owen's real name was Artemis Ogletree. His mother gave Ogletree's age as 17. She also explained that the scar on his scalp above his right ear was a result of a childhood accident when he was burned by some hot grease. Hmm. Artemis Ogletree. Love forever, Louise. Hmm. I guess Louise saying goodbye means to die a little, or for good, with Artemis Ogletree. I guess dead men are heavier than broken hearts. That's all there was. I was handed a pile of parchment of a cold case that ended where it started. Nowhere. Well, I guess a good story can't be devised if it has to be distilled. In this particular one, we'll have to take a little bit longer. So perhaps William Randolph Hearst would come back to exploit this strange man. My feeling, he'll just find a man on the run, afraid and waiting for it. But that's my gut talking. Artemis knew there was a countdown. Like many before and after, the man responsible for his own demise usually only has himself to blame and the motto, it's just business. Artemis has been sleeping without a dirty conscience for a long time. I figured I could wipe my down for some shut-eye. I read somewhere that tonight was the darkest night in 500 years. Didn't seem that way. But if the man says so, I mean, for all the blinks I gave, this one will be a long one. So I surveyed my bed, made note of the time, crawled into the sheets till the wash of someone better brought me back to my right self. For all the blinks I gave, this one will be a long one. This concludes Room 1046, adapted from Emily Thompson's blog post, The Horror of Room 1046, and was produced and edited and mixed by Kevin Seaman for Auto Studios, and starring me, Jim Hudson, along with John Demers. Stay tuned next week for the mystery of the locked room. <laughs>